Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcast, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. You know, words really matter, and it's amazing how quickly one word can mean something, and then immediately, over time, even, start to mean something entirely different. One of those words is faith. Faith is an interesting word in our culture. One person might say faith and mean one thing, and another person might say faith and mean an entirely different thing. Uh, interesting example of that, I was talking to a guy yesterday, I just bumped into walking down the street, he was actually trying to share the gospel with me, which was really cool, and we ended up having a, like a 45-minute conversation, and, and we were just, you know, talking about different things, and he, he mentioned the word evangelical, and I, and I just thought, hey, so here's a good experiment, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and he told me what he thinks of when he says the word evangelical, he said, I think of like liberal Christians. I was like, wow, that's so weird. I think completely the opposite. I think evangelical means like Donald Trump supporter. That's like, that's what, and that's what I think a lot of people think. But what was so interesting to me was how different one word can mean to two different people. Evangelical means different things to different people. Now that's just an example, but the word faith is no different. Faith to one person means one thing and faith to another person means an entirely different thing. And we as Christians have to be really clear what we mean by faith. Now, in our culture, the word faith has been changed from what Christians believed it to be to to something really entirely different. Now, I talk to people all the time that say, I am a person of faith. Have you guys ever had that? I'm I'm a person of faith. In fact, probably... 80%, I'm pulling that statistic out of nowhere, but probably 80%, I would think, of the people I talk to at least, say, yeah, I'm a person of faith. I have faith. I have faith. And it's almost something that that is is, um, praised in our culture, so people are really honest about that. I'm a person of faith. But oftentimes, I'll ask that person, I'm like, but what do you mean by that? What is your faith And what I find oftentimes is that in our culture, faith now is not so much about having uh, hope in something, but faith itself has become itself a thing. Does that make sense? It's kind of like this. Here's what faith is in our culture. Faith in Christianity is when you put on a harness and you go rock climbing, but you attach the harness to a rope and the rope is attached to to the rock, okay, uh, or, you know, something, something much larger and much heavier than yourself, okay, that, that's the biblical idea of faith, is that my faith means that I trust in something that's going to hold me when I put my weight on it, that's the biblical idea of faith, the culture's idea of faith now is that you just put a harness on, and then you let everyone see it, but you never attach it to anything, and you say, look, I am a person of faith, look, I have a harness, and you go, but what's your faith in, that doesn't matter, just, I just have it. Faith in our culture has become uh, not a belief or hope in a particular object, but it's become an object in and of itself. And I guarantee most people that would say they are people of faith don't actually know what their faith is in. Faith in our culture has become a commodity, not a necessity. It's become an optional accessory to your image. 
something that might help kind of shape the way you want people to think about you. It's, it's kind of an opt-in, opt-out. You know, I mean, you can have faith, you can not have faith. Sort of like a, a decision to, you know, uh, dye your hair or not dye your hair. Does it matter? No. If you want to do it, do it. Faith, if it's helpful for you, then have faith. And that's the way people look at it. Now, that we will be oftentimes praised by secular culture for having faith. Like, good for you. You have faith. If that helps you, then good. But what they mean is, uh, you know, that's great that you have faith. Just don't tell me that it has to be in any certain person. Faith in our current context, it submits to our gravity. Our gravity doesn't submit uh, to it. Now, because faith is viewed as an accessory, telling someone that they need to have faith in a particular object is offensive. It's as offensive as if I told you that you should wear a different style of clothing, right? Like if you came up to me and you're like, Sam, uh, your style is all off, man. Like, you, you, your accessories are they're all wrong. Not that I really have accessories, but you know what I'm saying. You, you need to change it up. I was like, that's offensive. Like, you're a jerk. Like, why are you picking on my style? Okay. Uh, the, the problem is, is that we see faith as an accessory, so if someone challenges what your faith is in, we are offended because we see it as a personal choice. We see it as something that, that you do, uh, that, that it's up to you to decide what's true. And so because it's up to you to decide what's true, anyone that tells you you're wrong is offending you. But if you think about faith from a biblical perspective, that what matters most about faith is not faith itself, it's what it's connected to. It's not the harness that saves you, it's what the harness is connected to, right? If you think about that, then there's nothing more important than challenging what someone is hooked up to, right? It's not an accessory, it's something that will either save your life or not. Okay, I remember working on a high ropes course, Okay, you're 50, 80 feet up in the air, and it was my job to harness people up. It's kind of an awkward uh, thing. You're like, okay, here, you put it on. It's like a diaper, you know, they have to put on. And then you have to make sure that they're connected. And if they're not connected to the tree, they are going to die. And if they die, it's your fault, because it was your job to connect them to the tree. And what matters in that point is not whether or not they're wearing a harness, it's whether or not they're connected to the tree, okay? Now, how do we get to this point in our culture where faith has become sort of this nebulous idea and it's offensive to challenge someone's faith. It all comes down to something called a utopian worldview. Okay, what that means is, is that all of us as humans have an idea of what we think is gonna fix the world. And every generation and every culture has an, had a different idea of what we thought was gonna fix the world. The Romans thought they were the answer to fixing the world, that they were gonna take over the world, they were the light, and they were gonna take over the world and create a peaceful society. Okay, that was their utopian Vision. There was a point in our history not too long ago where the utopian vision was uh, science and, and um, human achievement and, and just you know, growing as a, as, a, as a culture and intelligence and, and, and intellectualism. If we just get smart enough, all the problems will go away. Well, that didn't work. Problems are still here. So what's the new utopian vision? Y'all need to stop telling each other to change. Y'all need to stop challenging each other's belief systems. We all just need to get along. And it's even further than that. It's not just y'all need to get along. It's y'all need to stop telling each other that you're wrong. All truths have to be equally valid. That's the new utopian vision for what is called postmodernism. It's the, the culture that we're swimming in right now. The world would be better if Christians and religious people would stop telling other people that they're wrong. We just need to all allow each other's truth to be equally valid. That will fix 
the problem. So if that's the culture you swim in, then if you're a person that tells someone else they're wrong, you become what? The devil <laughs> in their utopian worldview. You become the problem. You become the issue. You become the thing that needs to be eradicated. And that's why Christianity and postmodernism are like oil and water right now. Because postmodernism looks at Christianity like, no, no, you're the problem. You're so judgmental because of you, all your absolute truth claims and all this kind of stuff. So that's really where we're swimming in. So the idea of trying to convince or convert, okay, notice that word, convert someone, is like basically social terrorism. Who are you to try to convert me? I have faith, okay? This is the culture that we swim in. The problem is, is that people really like the idea of having a God in their life. So they basically have created a system where we can have whatever God you want, no one will ever challenge you on it, you can make them in your own image, and do whatever you want. Sounds like a great idea, right? Our question today is, what is the biblical paradigm? What is the biblical definition of faith? There's a lot of bad tweets and bad um, sound bites in Christianity, bad bumper stickers floating around that say stupid things like this. Faith is just believing. Okay, faith is just blind. It's just, you just, sometimes you just have to close your eyes and jump. Okay? This idea that Christianity isn't really rational. Christianity isn't really evidential. Christianity isn't really objective. It's just kind of like something you just have to close your eyes and just hope that it's true. That's not what I see in the Bible. That's not what the New Testament authors paint when they talk about faith. That's not the way Paul presents the faith. He paints it as a rational, evidential, objective reality that you can either believe in or not. Okay? It's not just some kind of a blind thing. So we need to redefine that. And what I want to do this morning is I want to see how does the Bible define faith? How do we see it as a decision to place all our hope? Or how do we see it as, as a rational and evidential reality to place our harness to? Okay, how do we see that? So we're going to blitz through chapter 25. It's really just going to set the stage for the narrative. And then we're going to dive more into chapter 26. So let's open up to it. Acts 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, if you remember in chapter 24, the previous governor of Judea, the Roman governor, was named Felix. Okay, Felix ruled for about two years. And for that two years that he ruled, Paul the apostle is sitting in prison, stuck, waiting, basically hung up in the court system. So Felix was a bad governor. He didn't know what to do with Paul. He didn't know how to both, um, you know, please the Jews and please the Romans. So he just basically um, left him sitting in prison for two years. Okay. Finally, Felix gets moved out. Caesar Nero basically calls him back to Rome, and he reinstates a new governor of the Judean region. Okay, and that new governor is named Festus. Now, Festus is a little bit of a better guy than Felix. He's a little more by the book. You can tell that he's kind of going to attempt, at least, to govern fairly. Verse 2, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush uh, planning to ambush to kill him on the way. So these guys are still trying to kill Paul. It's been two years now, <laughs> and they're still trying to kill him. 
And they're using the same tactic they did before. They're trying to convince Festus to transport Paul from Caesarea on the coast up the mountain to Jerusalem so that they can jump him on the road and kill him without having to go through the court system. So Festus, he's, he's not really buying into this. He replies that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, verse 4, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, that, so, so, he, so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So he says, no way, I'm not going to bring him to Jerusalem. I'm headed back to Caesarea right now, which was sort of the, provident, the provincial capital, provincial Roman capital of Judea. I'm going back. If you guys want to come and, and state your charges against the apostle Paul, you could come with me and do it there. Verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, that's Festus, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal, that's the judgment seat or bema seat, and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? You got to understand the Roman governors had a really rough job, <laughs> okay? Rome is, is essentially the, the, um, the imperial, uh, you know, they, they basically own Israel and Judea because they, they were this one world ruling empire, but they didn't want to govern everything themselves. So they largely would allow the people to govern themselves with the ultimate authority of Rome. So Israel was mostly governed, or the Judea, the southern part of Israel was mostly governed by their own kings, which were mostly puppets like Agrippa, puppet kings for, for Rome. Um, and then also the, the Sanhedrin, the 70 council members that presided in Jerusalem. And they were sort of the religious leaders, the thought leaders of that time. Now, in our day, we have this separation of church and state. That's not really how it was for most of history. Okay, uh, the church and state were mostly one thing. So uh, the temple and the power in the temple was really deeply connected to the, politi the um, sort of the political seat of Judea as well. So Festus is in this really hard position. He has to decide how to placate and keep the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, happy, and at the same time abide by his own Roman rule and be a fair governor. So he's trying to do both those things. So he, he basically says to Paul, hey, do you want to just go to Jerusalem? What he's basically saying is that'll make them happy. That'll keep them off my back. And we can do your trial up in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's not stupid. He doesn't want anything to do with being tried by the Sanhedrin because he knows they want his head. They know they're out. They know he knows they're out for blood. So verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm, I, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And listen to this, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have, uh, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Here's what Paul does. He's, he's a smart guy. 
He goes, I'm not gonna get justice in this uh, sort of regional governing uh, system here. I need to appeal all the way to the top. Now, we based a lot of our government on, <laughs> on Rome, actually, uh, and, and the way that their system worked was that you could always appeal to a higher court if you were a Roman citizen, all the way up to Caesar. We have a similar thing in our country, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court. So if you feel like you're, you were not um, justly handled, you can appeal to a higher court. So Paul, as a Roman citizen, does that. He's like, I'm not going to get justice here with these guys, so I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And that puts Festus in this really awkward position. He can't deny Paul his right as a citizen to go before Caesar, but he knows there's no real charges against Paul. And so he's like kind of embarrassed. Like, if I send this guy to Caesar, Caesar's going to kick me out of my job because he's going to be like, why are you sending this guy to me? He's done nothing wrong. I think, personally, I can't prove this, but I think Paul is pretty smart. And I think, I think he's like, hey, if I appeal to Caesar, Festus is just going to let me go. I, that's what I think. But Festus doesn't do that. He doesn't let him go. Here's what he does. He calls his buddy, his newly founded buddy, Agrippa. Agrippa was sort of the puppet king of Judea. Okay? He, he, he was considered the king, but really all the power was mostly with Rome. But because they wanted someone from the people to sort of be in a position of power, they allowed Agrippa to, to sort of govern that, that area. Now, Agrippa, although I don't think he was fully a Jew, he understood the Jewish culture. So Festus, who's a Roman from Rome, a Greek, he doesn't have any idea really what these crazy Jewish people squabble about in the temple and all this stuff. He calls Agrippa and, and basically says, maybe this guy can help me out. So verse 13, And when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice by the way, who is his sister wife, okay? She's uh, his sister that he married, because that's what you do apparently when you're Agrippa and you're part of the Herod family, the Herod dynasty, some of the worst people in biblical history, okay? I mean, I could go into the details of this guy's grandpa and his dad, but they were all bad, okay? So he marries his sister, um, Verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. In other words, this guy, the governor before me left this guy here for me to deal with, and now I got to deal with him. And I don't know what to do with him. Agrippa, can you come help me out with this? And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 16, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. This is Roman law. Verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed, Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So you're hearing the gospel through the mouth of a pagan that has no understanding of Jewish religion or who Jesus is. He's like, this guy, is, he's, they're mad at him because he's talking about some Jesus that raised from the dead and it's some kind of religious squabble and I don't understand, Agrippa. Can you help me sort this out, essentially? Being at a loss how to investigate, verse 20, these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay, verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa 
and Bernice, his sister wife, came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So they have this big, showy parade. Uh, this is all about you know Agrippa and Festus sort of showing off their money and their power and their authority. They have all of the important people there. Uh, they bring Paul in uh, to, to basically plead his case. Verse 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, meaning Caesar. Again, Festus is like, I, I know I have to send this guy to Caesar, but I have no real charges to send with him, and it's, it's really going to be awkward for me. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Okay, so that's chapter 25. It sets the table. It sets the scene for what's about to happen. And what's about to happen is Paul is about to give his fourth defense according to, or uh, in front of the, um, the, the king and, and the governor. Okay? This is the fourth time he's going to give a defense. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself, Paul says, fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense. You might underline that word, by the way. It's the Greek word apologia. We've talked about it before. It's where we get our term apologetics, and it's defense. It's making a defense, in Christianity at least, it's making a defense for the faith. So Paul's saying, I'm about to make a defense here. He says, I'm glad it's before you, Agrippa, because you understand all the nuances and complexity of the Jewish religion. He says, you're familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Okay, so Paul now, for the rest of this chapter, is going to give his apologia, his defense, um, not only of himself, but as you'll see, of the faith. Of the faith. Now, what I love about Paul is that he, his, his desire to speak about the gospel was so intertwined with anything and everything that he said that everything out of his mouth essentially was gospel. He's in a moment where he's being asked to defend himself, but what he really ends up doing is defending the faith. What he really ends up doing is laying out the gospel. What he really ends up doing is laying out the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Because for Paul, there was no separation in his mind and in his heart between the gospel and himself. He just, he just all of it was ready to come out at any point. So really what we're going to read here in chapter 26 isn't just him defending himself. It's him laying out the rationality of the faith. Now skip ahead to verse 24 really quick. I just want you to see Paul's summation or his conclusion after his argument and make a note here. Verse 24. Now, as he was saying these things, so Paul just finished his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But listen to Paul's response. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking, listen, true and rational words. So Paul's defense that we're going to look at here 
It's not some feelings-based, emotionally-driven, wishful thinking faith. It's rational and it's true, Paul says. It's rational and it's true. And, And the same is true of the Christian faith. Our Christian faith is not just something we just choose to feel it, or believe because it feels good. Our Christian faith is rational and it's true. And I want to show you guys through chapter 26 how, just how rational and true Paul's defense of the faith really is. It's rational and it's true. Now, Ravi Zacharias, who just recently passed away, he used this uh, paradigm to examine whether something was rational and true. Okay, here's what he said. He said, three tests must be applied to any worldview in order to determine if it is true. Okay, so here's the three tests. Number one, is it logical, or number one, logical consistency. Okay, logical consistency. And what that means is, is, is it, does it make sense with what we already know to be true? Does the Christian faith make sense with what we already know to be true? Secondly, empirical adequacy. In other words, is there evidence? Is there evidence to prove that what we believe in is actually true? Is that evidence adequate? And thirdly, experiential relevancy. Experiential relevancy means, does it it work in the real world? Does it actually have any, is it relevant to me in any way? Or is it just sort of a bunch of um, mumbo jumbo uh, metaphysical stuff that doesn't really apply? So he he says, run these these, um, truth claims through this filter. Is it logically consistent? Is it empirically adequate? Is it experientially relevant? And that actually, interestingly, I noticed this week as my wife shared this quote with me, I noticed that Paul's argument fits this grid perfectly. Paul literally ticks all three of these boxes in his defense. So we're gonna use this three-point grid as our outline to finish the rest of chapter 26. And I want you to see how Paul argues and makes a case for all three of these things, okay? So first, logical consistency, and that's in verses four through eight. So here's what Paul says. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. In other words, everybody here in Jerusalem knows me as a Pharisee. I grew up here, I studied here, I I grew up as 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 a a Pharisee here. I was trained here. Everybody understands how I used to think. Verse five, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Okay, now Pharisees, as you guys probably know, were the religious leaders, the lawyers of the law. They spent their entire life studying, memorizing, uh, and they got paid largely to actually help, like a lawyer would, help people discern and understand the law. Okay, they were the religious elite. He says, this is who I was. I was a Pharisee. Verse six, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. Isn't that interesting? To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews. Okay. So what Paul is doing here is he's giving logical consistency. He's saying, okay, what are they accusing me of? They're ultimately accusing me of being against the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. He's like, okay, well, let's think about that. First of all, he's like, I have three doctorates 
in Old Testament Jewish law. And Paul literally had the equivalent of probably close to three doctorates. Okay, I mean, he had an immense knowledge of Old Testament scripture. He was brilliant. He said, so first of all, if there's anyone who's able to speak to that, it's me. Okay, and he is going to show how what he believes, which is the resurrection of Christ, the hope in the resurrection of Christ, how what he believes is actually logically consistent with the Old Testament, with the credibility of the Old Testament. Okay, so this is why he says, specifically in verse six, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. So he's logically consistent, uh, his faith was logically consistent with the scriptures. He's like, in fact, what I believe about Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything the Old Testament ever said. Okay, everything the Old Testament ever said. Flip really quickly ahead a few verses to verse 22, and I want you to see Paul brings this argument around. In verse 22, he says, For this, or to this day I have had, I have had, <laughs> hello, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, he's quoting scripture now, that the Christ must suffer, that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What Paul is saying here is like, I'm on trial for believing what the Old Testament said was gonna happen. That's what he's saying. I'm on trial for believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of exactly what scripture said needed to happen. The Old Testament said that someone needed to come and suffer. This messianic figure would come and suffer for the iniquity of his people. The Old Testament scripture said that someone would come in order to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus fit exactly what the Old Testament was saying needed to happen, had to happen. And so Paul's saying, logically, it doesn't make any sense that they're accusing me of being against the thing that I'm saying Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of. Doesn't make any sense. So Jesus is logically or pardon me, Paul is logically consistent, first of all, with the scriptures, but he's also logically consistent with their own theological position on the resurrection. Now go back here uh, in 26 to where we left off. Notice what he says in verse eight. He said, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul says, why is it thought incredible by any of you? Why is Paul saying that? He's saying that because the Pharisees had a view of resurrection. Did you know that? The Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees did. The Pharisees believed that the Old Testament clearly spoke about resurrection, because it does. Okay, it does speak about resurrection. So Paul's saying, what's the big deal about resurrection? Why are you guys having such a hard time with this? Why do you want to kill me because I said Jesus was resurrected? It's interesting, I was, I was listening to a, uh, an interview uh, ben Shapiro, if you guys are familiar with him, he's actually a practicing Jew. He was interviewing uh, William Lane Craig, who's a phenomenal apologist. Um, you should check him out. Uh, but anyways, uh, he's, he's interviewing William Lane Craig, and Ben Shapiro, who's, who's again a practicing Jew, he goes, okay, so, you know, I'm supposed to believe that Jesus is God because he was resurrected. He's all, but there was lots of people that were resurrected in the Bible. So what, why, why is Jesus more credible than them? And I loved William, Craig, William Lane Craig's answer. He said, it's because of who Jesus claimed to be. See, Lazarus never claimed to be God. Lazarus never claimed to be Messiah. But Jesus did. 
And because he did, then the fact that if God raised him, then that means God the Father is saying, yes, he is who he claims to be. That's why the resurrection of Christ is more, uh, is more intense than any other resurrection. The Pharisees had no problem with the idea of resurrection, and Paul's pointing that out. He's like, why are you guys have a problem with that? The reason they had a problem with the resurrection of Christ was because who Christ claimed to be. And because they knew that the resurrection of Christ proved that he was who he said he was. And if you remember, Jesus didn't have a lot of good things to say about the Pharisees. So if he's God, they're in trouble, right? So my point here is just simply this. That Paul's logically pointing out that, that, that the resurrection of Christ is consistent with their own theology and it's consistent with the Old Testament. And what's the second thing we need to look for here is not only logical consistency, but empirical adequacy. In other words, is there any proof? Is there any proof that Jesus rose from the grave? Is there a rational proof in our faith that Jesus rose from the grave? Well, let's see what Paul says about that in verse 9. Now, he's, he's going to tell a story that you've heard four times. Can I just warn you? Okay, You're going to be like, wow, I've heard this before. Paul tells his story of his um, conversion four, like four times, and here's another one. So in this connection, oh, pardon me, verse 9, I myself was convinced that I thought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. So Paul's reminding them that he was a social terrorist to Christians before. I just spilled my water. That's okay. <laughs> Whatever. Um, he's reminding them that he was the one that killed Christians, ultimately. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. If you remember that expression, it's the idea of um, these little, uh, King James calls them pricks, but these little sharp things that would go behind the heel of a donkey or a horse so that if they kicked back, it would ultimately stab them. And so it was something sort of keeping the horse moving forward. And what Jesus is saying to Paul, he's like, why are you petting the cat back? Why are you kicking against the nails uh, by persecuting my people? And you're familiar with that in Acts chapter 9. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, that's actually doulos, it's slave, and witness, it's martyrion, where we get the word martyr, to the things in which you have seen to me, into those in which I will appear to you. Jesus says, hey, Paul, guess what? You're going to be a slave and a martyr. Are you excited? Okay. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, pardon me, one second. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I know that's a lot of text, okay? But let me break it down, okay? Paul is basically saying, hey, here's my evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Paul was the last person in the entire world that ever would have been considered to believe in the resurrection of Christ. He was literally the one who was all in on Phariseeism, the one who was literally sponsoring the killing of Christians, those that believed in the resurrection of Christ. Yet he's saying, my evidence for the resurrection is that I was the last one anyone would ever think would believe in the resurrection and I'm giving my life for the resurrection. You know, one of the criticisms of Christianity that people, they, they, they bring up is they say, well, of course Jesus' followers were willing to say he was resurrected because they were so attached, like their, their, their credibility in their life was so attached to this figure named Jesus that if he died, then it was all for nothing. So, of course, they made up this idea that Jesus was resurrected because it, it made sense for them. And that's, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. Except for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had nothing to gain in switching to the belief that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. The Apostle Paul is the fly in the ointment for that argument. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense that he would believe in the resurrected Christ. It did nothing for him except make him a public enemy of the Pharisees, basically cash in all of his education and credential, and become a slave and a martyr ultimately to Christ. So the fact that Paul is a believer in the resurrection is really good evidence for the resurrection. It's really good evidence. It is empirically adequate. Now, people could push back and say, yeah, but it's just his opinion. It's subjective. Okay, here's the thing. Every truth claim at some point ends up with someone's experience, with someone's credibility on the line. Okay, so maybe you believe that there's such a thing as oxygen. How do you know? Someone told you. How do you know they're telling you the truth? Okay, you're, you're, but you base whether you believe something or not on the credibility of the person that says it. So if a, someone with a PhD or a scientist or something says, hey, there is this thing called oxygen, you go, okay, well then I believe that person. So when someone who has nothing to gain, who is highly educated, had every reason not to believe Jesus resurrected, puts his whole life on the line and is willing to die believing and declaring that Jesus resurrected, I'd say that's pretty good evidence. I'd say that's pretty good empirical evidence. It's not the only evidence we have of the resurrection, but it's a pretty good one. And then lastly, Paul argues about experiential relevancy. Okay, in other words, does this, um, does this have anything to do with human life? No, look at verse 24. The story gets really interesting here. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, so Paul's there talking, giving his defense. Festus is sitting over there and he goes, hey, Paul, you're a nut job, <laughs> essentially is what he said. You're crazy. What are you talking about? He's, he speaks up, Festus, this governor, he speaks up and says, you're out of your mind. Your learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows, now this is so interesting, even though Festus is the one yelling at him, Paul turns his attention over to Agrippa, the king. He says, the king knows about these things. 
and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I love this. Paul speaks particularly to Agrippa and says, Agrippa, you know this stuff happened. You've been here. Your dad and your dad's dad and your uncle all dealt with this. They watched this happen. You know the resurrection is credible. You know the scriptures. You know the prophets said this would happen, Agrippa. So my point here is that Paul's argument is extremely relevant, and he knows it's extremely relevant to Agrippa because he knows Agrippa knows it's true. Man, what an evangelist Paul was. This isn't some theoretical, metaphysical, psychobabble. Paul says, this is true, Agrippa, and you know it. You've seen it. You've been around. You know that this is credible. To Felix, this probably all seemed like nonsense. To Felix, who grew up in Rome, who, who didn't see any of this stuff happening, he's like, I don't even know. Paul, you're insane. But Paul knows Agrippa knows. Okay, so there's a relevancy. There's an experiential relevancy here in this message for Agrippa. Now, there's something I think in every human being, I truly believe this, there's something I think in every human being that knows the gospel is true. There's something in every human being that knows the gospel is true. Now, bringing it back to Ravi Zacharias here, he has these four questions that he says that everybody asks as a human being. Four questions everybody asks as a human being. And, and by the way, this sermon, I'm, I'm hoping to give you some things to share with your non-Christian friends. Okay, so I know this is a lot of, uh, you know, maybe heady stuff, but, but think through these things because these are tools in your toolbox. So there's four things every human has to answer. Origin, not Oregon, that's the state we live in. Okay, origin, where did I come from? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, this is a, this is a tricky one. Why is there evil? Why do we know what evil is and how do we fix it? And lastly, destiny, where am I going? Okay, so these four questions every human being asks or has to ask. And every worldview, every religion has the burden of answering these questions, okay? Now, what we have on our side with the gospel is that the gospel answers these questions. It answers these questions and answers them very well. It answers the question of origin. Where did we come from? The Bible tells us that we were created in the image of a mind, we were created in the image of God himself, that a mind made matter, and he made the matter to have a mind. Okay? Now, let me, here's a question you can ask your non-Christian friends uh, when they try to tell you that science, science disproved, uh, you know, the Bible or whatever. You say, okay, what's more likely? That stuff made a mind or that a mind made stuff? Okay, if, if someone says, oh, we, this was just all an accident, through billions of years and random chance and evolution, now we have complex human beings that, can, that are self-aware and think. That just happened. So stuff made a brain. Or is it more likely that a brain made stuff? God existed eternally as a mind. And then he created creation, and in that creation, he created an image bearer that had a mind like him. So Christianity, the gospel, answers the question of origin. Okay, it answers the question of origin. And it, and it explains why we as humans like to build things, why we like to create things, why we like to think and progress because we're not made in the image of primordial soup. We're made in the image of a God that creates and thinks um, and, and builds 
and takes pleasure in building, so it answers the question of origin. What about meaning? Every worldview has to answer the question of meaning. Why are we here? What are we here to do? Okay, the gospel answers that as well. We are here to reflect the glory of our creator, and anything short of that will be disappointing in your life. Okay, anything short of that will be disappointing in your life. I had a conversation with a friend recently who's not a believer, um, and he, I said, why do you think you're here? He said, I think I'm here to do good and love people. I'm like, who cares once you're dead? So you loved your family. Good job. Now you're dead. What does it matter? Unless there is an eternal reward or an eternal lasting component to what we do on earth, our, me- our lives are meaningless. Because once we're dead, it's all gone. And we won't care. The gospel gives us the answer to that. Morality. The gospel answers the hardest questions. Now, if you want to really get into it with somebody, ask them these questions. Why is there evil? How do you know what evil is? And how do you fix it? People like to put that on Christianity. Well, Christianity can't tell me why there's evil in the world. Can science tell you? Can Buddhism tell you? Can Islam tell you? Okay? Christianity actually, I think, has the most adequate explanation of why there's evil, why we know what evil is, and how it needs to be dealt with. Okay? We know what we, we, evil is here. Evil is here as the absence of God. Okay? Evil is the denial of God and his rule and reign. That's the hardest question for anyone to answer is why is there evil here? The, the other question, why do we know what evil is? Well, we know what evil is because God has told us. Okay? We, we, he, he's told us what his nature is and what is against his nature. And we know how evil needs to be fixed. Okay? Evil needs to be fixed by the undoing of the curse. Humans need to be born again, and the creation needs to be renovated. Sin needs to be dealt with, removed, eradicated. There's an answer for that, okay? And then lastly, destiny. Where are we going? And the answer to that, of course, is to a sinless, eternal state full of meaning, security, and joy. Okay, God bringing us back. So, so these questions are something every human being has built into them to ask. Okay, now my, my point in this is when Paul looks to Agrippa and he goes, Agrippa, you know this is true. We can do the same thing when we look at another human being, another homo sapien, and we say, hey, I know the questions you have. Why am I here? How did I get here? What's up with evil? Where am I going? And I can tell you the answer to those questions. And I know that you know the answer to those questions. Deep down inside. Now let me just make a couple quick points and then we'll be done here. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. (laughs) You don't want those, trust me. Then the king rose and the governor, Ambernice, and those who were sitting with them, And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I love this. Okay, I love this because in our culture, it is, as I already said, it's a four-letter word to say the word conversion. If you tell someone, I'm trying to convert you, you might as well just tell them, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an evil person. Because that's the way conversion is viewed in our culture. It's thought of as being intolerant, unloving, uncompassionate to try to convert someone because faith's a commodity. But I love this. I love what Paul says. Agrippa's like, Paul, why are you trying to convert me? Paul's like, he makes no excuses. He's like, I want you converted. 
And I want everybody here converted. That's what Paul says. He says, I would love that everybody listening right now would come to be a believer in Christianity. So let me just say this and say it really clearly. Never, ever feel bad about trying to convert somebody. The only reason you feel guilty is because of a false paradigm in our culture that has told you that truth is relative and that the answer to the human problem is by all of us never disagreeing with anyone. Okay, that's absolutely false. If you really love somebody going to hell, you will tell them how to not go. And if you wanna be consistent with your own message, you have to tell them. Some of you may have listened to it. I did a podcast with my friend Trevor, who's not a believer. Uh, we did it right back there um, on our, our Conversations podcast. And at one point in the conversation, he said something really interesting. He said, you know, sometimes it, it does kind of frighten me that maybe I'm going to hell. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm frightened for you too. And, and he, he, the interesting thing was, as a non-Christian, he was able to go, basically say that, you know, I understand why you're telling me what you're telling me. If you didn't try to convert me, I wouldn't really believe that you believed what you believe or that you really loved me. And that's a non-Christian. So for, for me as a Christian to be like, well, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm not going to share the gospel with them. You're undoing your own message. And what you're telling them is, I don't really think that you're going to go to hell. And I don't think it's really that true. So I'm not really going to share with you. Okay, to be consistent with our own message, we can never feel bad about trying to convert anybody. For most of human history, trying to convert people was just part of life. We just live in such a woke generation now where trying to convert someone is evil. Okay? If we really believe everyone's going to hell that's not believing in Jesus, we better tell them. And if you don't, they're going to call you on it. Okay? Now let me just make one last point here and we're done. Here's my thesis. Okay, here's my thesis. My thesis. Faith is unavoidable. Neutrality is not optional. Therefore, conversion is not negotiable. Okay, let me break that down line by line. Okay? There is a lie in our culture right now that faith is an option. That you can either have it or you can not have it. It's up to you. Okay? Just like you can choose to eat steak or not. You can choose to be paleo or you can choose to be keto. Okay? Let me just say... There is no such option. Every human being is believing in something. You could say, no, I'm a secular scientist. I just believe in empirically proved data. Okay, how do you know that empirically proved data is really true? How do you know the scientists you're listening to aren't duping you? I mean, you, you, at some point, you have to believe. And I always crack up with atheists. I always joke and say, I don't believe in atheists because to be an atheist, you have to know everything in the universe to say without a shadow of a doubt that there's no option or possibility that there's a God, right? So there really is no escaping the fact that you have to, at some point in your life, you have to believe something. Now, when I, when I talk to people and they, and they say, I just want to remain neutral. I just, I don't, I'm not going to believe in anything. I'm just going to sort of remain neutral. I say, that's not possible. By choosing to do that, you're believing something. By choosing to have a secular humanist worldview, that's a religion. Your God is yourself, and your Bible is science. It's just a different religion and a different rapper. And listen to me, this is so important. The burden of proof is a two-way street. Do you know what I mean by that? Everyone wants to make Christians prove that there's a God, but no one's out there trying to make atheists prove that there isn't. Okay, it's a two-way street. The burden of proof lies at the feet of every human being. 
And so at the end of the day, the question comes down not to what can we prove with absolute, but what is most likely to be true? What is most rational, credible, evidential? And I believe, and I will preach this till I'm blue in the face, that the gospel is the most evidential, rational, and credible answer to the four questions every human has. It answers it. So, sec- so firstly, faithful, or faith is not, <laughs> faith is unavoidable, and neutrality is not optional. Okay? This idea that I'm just going to be neutral, and when I stand before God one day, I'm going to be like, I wasn't against you. I was just neutral. I just didn't pick anything. It's really interesting. Look really quickly at our text in verse 16. There's this lie going around that Jesus was actually a universalist and that he didn't really believe in exclusive truth. I want you to listen to Jesus' words in our text. I kind of just read over it before, but look more closely. These are Jesus' words to the apostle Paul. He says, rise, Paul, stand upon your feet, verse 16, 26, Rise to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen to me and to those in which I will appear to you. Verse 17. To open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying this is what people, this is what I want you to save people from. So reverse engineer it. This is what Jesus says people are when they're not in Christ. They're blind, but more than just blind, they're choosing to shut their eyes. They're choosing to be in darkness under the power of Satan, meaning they're his vessels, in, uh, unforgiven in their sin, and not yet among Jesus' people. By Jesus' own admission, that's the definition of a non-Christian. Does that sound like a neutral party to you? Does someone who is under the power of Satan with their eyes shut in darkness, does that sound like a neutral party to you? The Bible, the Bible does not allow for neutrality. It does not allow for us to go, eh, I'm just kind of riding both sides. The Bible sorts all of humanity into two groups, Adam, Christ. It sorts all of humanity into two kingdoms, Satan's kingdom, God's kingdom. You cannot be in both. So this idea that you can remain neutral, that faith is a commodity, is not possible, according to the Bible. We are either in the kingdom of God, or we are not in the kingdom of God. We are either his servant, or we are his enemy. Now, that's not popular. And when you tell people that, they they feel uncomfortable with that. But this is what the Bible says. And the reason that that's so important is because it means if neutrality is not optional, We have to convert people, and we have to be okay with that, okay? There is no such thing as avoiding faith, and there is no such thing as neutrality. So the only possible answer is, therefore, conversion is not negotiable, okay? So my thesis is faith is unavoidable, neutrality is not optional, therefore, conversion is not negotiable. You cannot get around it. The people that are choosing to say we believe all roads lead to heaven and we believe the Bible, it doesn't work. You can't believe this and believe that everyone gets to go to heaven no matter what you believe in unless you turn your brain off and start cutting pages out. I'm not trying to just get all intense. I'm trying to get us to remember the importance, the severity of the call that we have to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And I want you to understand that you are being brainwashed every second of every day by our culture to feel guilty 
for trying to tell someone they're going to hell. Don't buy it. You're feeling guilty because the culture has made you feel like trying to convert someone is the enemy of culture. It's not true. It's not true. Many have tried to stand in a place of neutrality, Agrippa trying. You guarantee, I guarantee he's squirming in his seat. Paul's like, Agrippa, you know this is true. You know it. I think of Pilate. He just wants to wash his hands of this. I don't know what to do with Jesus. I don't know how to deal with him, so I'm going to wash my hands of this and walk away. Was Pilate neutral? No, he made his choice. He killed the Son of God. He made his choice. So what? Okay, just a few things. So what? So if everyone has to believe something, then it levels the field. The burden of proof lays at everyone's feet. Okay, this is review. So there is no logical substance to having faith in faith itself. Our faith is only as good as the object it's placed in. Okay? Lastly, just because you believe something doesn't mean it's true. Can we, can we agree on that? Just because you believe it doesn't mean it's true. That is the truest example of irrational and wishful thinking. And lastly, and most importantly, we should not feel bad about trying to convert people. Okay? That is the main thing I want you to take away. So our call to action in this is to begin to redefine the narrative of what Christian faith is for both Christians and non-Christians. Okay, let's redefine the reality of what faith is. Let's level the playing field and let's be confident enough in the gospel to allow hard questions to come up. You're not helping anybody by being afraid to bring up hard questions. There are hard questions that Christianity has to answer and I believe they can answer them. Bring them up. Let your kids bring them up. Don't send your kids off to university never asking the questions that you know their university professor is going to make them answer. Help them think through it now. Father, thank you so much this morning for the rationality, the credibility, the evidentiality of our faith. Thank you that it is not something that we have in, uh, created in our head just so we can feel better about the broken world we live in. Thank you that there is good evidence for the resurrection. And if there's good evidence for the resurrection, that Jesus, that means you were who you said you were. And if you were who you said you were, then you did what you said you did. And if you did what you said you did, then we sit here this morning justified, forgiven, redeemed on our way to an eternal existence with you. You're going to fix the world. You're going to eradicate sin. You're going to judge all evil. God, I'm so thankful for those realities. And we stake our faith in that. We harness ourselves to the mountain of evidence that you were who you said you were, Jesus, and we believe that you were who you said you were. God, I pray that our confidence in the gospel would be contagious in this city. That people, Lord, would come to know you, Christ, because we are willing to share with you. Not in an angry way, not shouting at people, but in a relational way, in a way that builds relational equity, in a way, Lord, that, that is the way you shared, Jesus in relationship. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.